Story two of Youth and the Bright Medusa and the Troll Garden by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two The Diamond Mine Part three. Late one afternoon in the winter of eighteen ninety, Cressida and I were walking in Central Park after the first heavy storm of the year. The snow had been falling thickly all the night before and all day until about four o'clock then the air grew much warmer and the sky cleared overhead it was a soft rainy blue and to the west a smoky gold all around the horizon everything became misty and silvery even the big brutal buildings looked like pale violet watercolors on a silver ground under the elm trees along the mall the air was purple as wisteria's the sheep field toward broadway was smooth and white with a thin gold wash over it at five o'clock the carriage came for us but cressida sent the driver home to the tenth street house with the message that she would dine uptown and that horace and mr poppas were not to wait for her as the horses trotted away we turned up the mall i won't go indoors this evening for any one cressida declared not while the sky is like that now we will go back to the laurel wood they are so black over the snow that i could cry for joy i don't know when i felt so carefree as i feel to-night country winter country stars they always make me think of charlie wilton she was singing twice a week sometimes oftener at the metropolitan that season quite at the flood-tide of her powers and so enmeshed in operatic routine that to be walking in the park at an unaccustomed hour unattended by one of the men of her entourage seemed adventurous as we strolled along the little paths among the snow-banks and the bronze laurel bushes she kept going back to my poor young cousin dead so long things happen out of season that's the worst of living it was untimely for both of us and yet she sighed softly since he had to die i'm not sorry there was one beautifully happy year though we were so poor and it gave him something it would have been too hard if he'd had to miss everything i remember her simplicity which never changed any more than winter or ohio change yes she went on i always feel very tenderly about charlie i believe i'd do the same thing right over again even knowing all that had to come after if i were nineteen to-night i'd rather go sleigh-riding with charlie wilton than anything else i've ever done we walked until the procession of carriages on the driveway getting people home to dinner grew thin and then we went slowly toward the seventh avenue gate still talking of charlie wilton we decided to dine at a place not far away where the only access from the street was a narrow door like a hole in the wall between a tobacconist's and a flower shop cressida deluded herself into believing that her incognito was more successful in such nondescript places she was wearing a long sable coat and a deep fur hat hung with red cherries which she had brought from russia her walk had given her a fine color and she looked so much a personage that no disguise could ever have been wholly effective 
The dining rooms, frescoed with conventional Italian scenes, were built around a court. The orchestra was playing as we entered and selected our table. It was not a bad orchestra, and we were no sooner seated than the first violin began to speak, to assert itself as if it were suddenly done with mediocrity. "'We have been recognized,' Cressida said complacently. "'What a good tone he has! Quite unusual! What does he look like?' She sat with her back to the musicians. The violinist was standing, directing his men with his head and with the beak of his violin. He was a tall, gaunt young man, big-boned and rugged, in skin-tight clothes. His high forehead had a kind of luminous pallor, and his hair was jet-black and somewhat stringy. His manner was excited and dramatic. At the end of the number he acknowledged the applause, and Cressida looked at him graciously over her shoulder. He swept her with a brilliant glance and bowed again. Then I noticed his red lips and thick black eyebrows. "'He looks as if he were poor or in trouble,' Cressida said. "'See how short his sleeves are, and how he mops his face as if the least thing upset him. This is a hard winter for musicians.' The violinist rummaged among some music piled on a chair, turning over the sheets with flurried rapidity, as if he were searching for a lost article of which he was in desperate need. Presently he placed some sheets upon the piano, and began vehemently to explain something to the pianist. The pianist stared at the music doubtfully. He was a plump old man with a rosy bald crown, and his shiny linen and neat tie made him look as if he were on his way to a party. The violinist bent over him, suggesting rhythms with his shoulders, and running his bony finger up and down the pages. When he stepped back to his place, I noticed that the other players sat at ease, without raising their instruments. "'He is going to try something unusual,' I commented. "'It looks as if it might be manuscript.' It was something, at all events, that neither of us had heard before though it was very much in the manner of the later Russian composers who were just beginning to be heard in New York. The young man made a brilliant dash of it, despite a lagging, scrambling accompaniment by the conservative pianist. This time we both applauded him vigorously, and again, as he bowed, he swept us with his eye. The usual repertory of restaurant music followed, varied by a charming bit from Massenet's Manon then little known in this country. After we paid our check, Cressida took out one of her visiting cards and wrote across the top of it, We thank you for the unusual music and the pleasure your playing has given us. She folded the card in the middle and asked the waiter to give it to the director of the orchestra. Pausing at the door, while the porter dashed out to call a cab, we saw in the wall mirror a pair of wild black eyes following us quite despairingly from behind the palms at the other end of the room. Cressida observed, as we went out, that the young man was probably having a hard struggle. He never got those clothes here, surely. They were probably made by a country tailor in some little town in Austria. He seemed wild enough to grab at anything, and was trying to make himself heard above the dishes, poor fellow. There are so many like him. I wish I could help them all. I didn't quite have the courage to send him money. 
His smile, when he bowed to us, was not that of one who would take it, do you think? No, I admitted, it wasn't. He seemed to be pleading for recognition. I don't think it was money he wanted. A week later I came upon some curious-looking manuscript songs on the piano in Cressida's music room. The text was in some Slavic tongue, with a French translation written underneath. Both the handwriting and the musical script were done in a manner experienced, even distinguished. I was looking at them when Cressida came in. "'Oh, yes!' she exclaimed. "'I meant to ask you to try them over. Papa's thinks they are very interesting. They are from that young violinist, you remember, the one we noticed in the restaurant that evening. He sent them with such a nice letter. His name is Blasius Bulkalka, a bohemian.' I sat down at the piano and busied myself with the manuscript, while Cressida dashed off necessary notes and wrote checks in a large square check-book, six to a page. I supposed her immersed in sumptuary preoccupations, when she suddenly looked over her shoulder and said, "'Yes, that legend, Sarka, is the most interesting. Run it through a few times, and I'll try it over with you.' There was another. Dans les ombres des forêts tristes, which I thought quite as beautiful. They were fine songs, very individual, and each had that spontaneity which makes a song seem inevitable and once for all done. The accompaniments were difficult, but not unnecessarily so. They were free from fatuous ingenuity and fine writing. I wish he'd indicated his tempi a little more clearly, I remarked, as I finished Sarka for the third time. It matters, because he really has something to say. An orchestral accompaniment would be better, I should think. Yes, he sent the orchestral arrangement. Papa's has it. It works out beautifully. So much color in the instrumentation. The English horn comes in so effectively there, she rose and indicated the passage, just right with the voice. I've asked him to come next Sunday, so please be here if you can. I want to know what you think of him. Cressida was always at home to her friends on Sunday afternoon, unless she was billed for the evening concert at the opera house, in which case we were sufficiently advised by the daily press. Bulkaka must have been told to come early, for when I arrived on Sunday at four, he and Cressida had the music-room quite to themselves, and were standing by the piano in earnest conversation. In a few moments they were separated by other early comers, and I led Bukaka across the hall to the drawing-room. The guests, as they came in, glanced at him curiously. He wore a dark blue suit, soft and rather baggy, with a short coat and a high double-breasted vest with two rows of buttons coming up to the loops of his black tie. This costume was even more foreign-looking than his skin-tight dress clothes, but it was more becoming. He spoke hurried elliptical English and very good French. All his sympathies were French rather than German. The Czechs leaned to the one culture or to the other. I found him a fierce, a transfixing talker. His brilliant eyes, his gaunt hands, his white, deeply-lined forehead, all entered into his speech. I asked him whether he had not recognized Madame Garnet at once when we entered the restaurant that evening more than a week ago. 
"_Mais certainement_," I heard her twice when she sings in the afternoon, and sometimes at night for the last act. I have a friend who buys a ticket for the first part, and he comes out and gives to me his pass book check, and I return for the last act. That is convenient if I am broke." He explained the trick with amusement, but without embarrassment, as if it were a shift that we might any of us be put to. I told him that I admired his skill with the violin, but his songs much more. He threw out his red underlip and frowned. Oh, I have no instrument. The violin I play from necessity, the flute, the piano, as it happens. For three years now I write all the time, and it spoils the hand for violin. When the maid brought him his tea, he took both muffins and cakes, and told me that he was very hungry. He had to lunch and dine at the place where he played, and he got very tired of the food. But since his black eyebrows nearly met in an acute angle, but since, before I eat at a bakery with the slender brown roach on the pie, I guess I better let alone well enough. He paused to drink his tea. As he tasted one of the cakes, his face filled with sudden animation, and he gazed across the hall after the maid with the tray. She was now holding it before the aged and ossified cellist of the Hempstengel Quartet. De gâteaux, he murmured feelingly. Où est-ce qu'elle peut trouver de tels gâteaux ici à New York? I explained to him that Madame Garnett had an accomplished cook who made them an Austrian, I thought. He shook his head. Austrichienne? Je ne pense pas. Cressida was approaching with the new Spanish soprano, Madame Bartolas, who was all black velvet and long black feathers, with a lace veil over her rich pallor, and even a little black patch on her chin. I beckoned them. Tell me, Cressida, isn't Ruzinka an Austrian? She looked surprised. No, a bohemian, though I got her in Vienna. Bukalka's expression, and the remnant of a cake in his long fingers, gave her the connection. She laughed. You like them? Of course they are of your own country. You shall have more of them. She nodded, and went away to greet a guest who had just come in. A few moments later Horace, then a beautiful lad in Eton clothes, brought another cup of tea and a plate of cakes for Bukalka. We sat down in a corner and talked about his songs. He was neither boastful nor deprecatory. He knew exactly in what respects they were excellent. I decided, as I watched his face, that he must be under thirty. The deep lines in his forehead probably came from his habit of frowning densely when he struggled to express himself, and suddenly elevating his coal-black eyebrows when his ideas cleared. His teeth were white very irregular and interesting. The corrective methods of modern dentistry would have taken away half his good looks. His mouth would have been much less attractive for any rearranging of those long, narrow, overcrowded teeth. Along with his frown and his way of thrusting out his lip, they contributed somehow to the engaging impetuousness of his conversation. As we talked about his songs, his manner changed. Before that he had seemed responsive and easily pleased. 
Now he grew abstracted, as if I had taken away his pleasant afternoon and wakened him to his miseries. He moved restlessly in his clothes. When I mentioned Puccini, he held his head in his hands. Why is it they like that always and always? A little, oh yes, very nice, but so much, always the same. Why? He pierced me with a despairing glance, which had followed us out of the restaurant. I asked him whether he had sent any of his songs to the publishers, and named one whom I knew to be discriminating. He shrugged his shoulders. They not want bohemian songs. They not want my music. Even the street-cars will not stop for me here, like for other people. Every time I wait on the corner until somebody else make a signal to the car, and then it stop, but not for me. Most people cannot become utterly poor. Whatever happens, they can right themselves a little. But one felt that Bukalka was the sort of person who might actually starve or blow his brains out. Something very important had been left out, either of his make-up or of his education, something that we are not accustomed to miss in people. Gradually the parlor was filled with little groups of friends, and I took Bukalka back to the music-room where Cressida was surrounded by her guests. Feathered women with large sleeves and hats, young men of no importance, in frock-coats with shining hair, and the smile which is intended to say so many flattering things, but which really expresses little more than a desire to get on. The older men were standing about, waiting for a word adieu with the hostess. To these people Bukalka had nothing to say. He stood stiffly at the outer edge of the circle, watching Cressida with intent, impatient eyes, until, under the pretext of showing him a score, she drew him into the alcove at the back end of the long room where she kept her musical library. The bookcases ran from the floor to the ceiling. There was a table and a reading lamp and a window seat looking upon the little walled garden. Two persons could be quite withdrawn there, and yet be a part of the general friendly scene. Cressida took a score from the shelf and sat down with Bukalka upon the window-seat, the book open between them, though neither of them looked at it again. They fell to talking with great earnestness. At last the Bohemian pulled out a large yellowing silver watch, held it up before him, and stared at it a moment as if it were an object of horror. He sprang up, bent over Cressida's hand, and murmured something, dashed into the hall and out of the front door without waiting for the maid to open it. He had worn no overcoat, apparently. It was then seven o'clock. He would surely be late at his post in the uptown restaurant. I hoped he would have wit enough to take the elevated. After supper Cressida told me his story. His parents, both poor musicians, his mother a singer, died while he was yet a baby, and he was left to the care of an arbitrary uncle who resolved to make a priest of him. He was put into a monastery school and kept there. The organist and choir director, fortunately for Blasius, was an excellent musician, a man who had begun his career brilliantly, but who had met with crushing sorrows and disappointments in the world. He devoted himself to his talented pupil, and was the only teacher the young man ever had. 
At twenty-one, when he was ready for the novitiate, Blasius felt that the call of life was too strong for him, and he ran away out into a world of which he knew nothing. He tramped southward to Vienna, begging and playing his fiddle from town to town. In Vienna he fell in with a gypsy band which was being recruited for a Paris restaurant, and went with them to Paris. He played in cafés and in cheap theatres, did transcribing for a music publisher, tried to get pupils. For four years he was the mouse, and hunger was the cat. She kept him on the jump. When he got work he did not understand why. When he lost a job he did not understand why. During the time when most of us acquire a practical sense, get a half-unconscious knowledge of hard facts and market values, he had been shut away from the world, fed like the pigeons in the bell-tower of his monastery. Bukalka had now been in New York a year, and for all he knew about it, Cressida said, he might have landed the day before yesterday. Several weeks went by, as Bukalka did not reappear on Tenth Street, Cressida and I went once more to the place where he had played, only to find another violinist leading the orchestra. We summoned the proprietor, a Swiss Italian, polite and solicitous. He told us the gentleman was not playing there any more, was playing somewhere else, but he had forgotten where. We insisted upon talking to the old pianist, who at last reluctantly admitted that the bohemian had been dismissed. He had arrived very late one Sunday night three weeks ago, and had hot words with the proprietor. He had been late before, and had been warned. He was a very talented fellow, but wild, and not to be depended upon. The old man gave us the address of a French boarding-house on Seventh Avenue, where Bukalka used to room. We drove there at once, but the woman who kept the place said he had gone away two weeks before, leaving no address, as he never got letters. Another bohemian, who did engraving on glass, had a room with her, and when he came home perhaps he could tell where Bukalka was, for they were friends. It took us several days to run Bukalka down, but when we did find him, Cressida promptly busied herself in his behalf. She sang his Sarka with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra at a Sunday night concert, she got him a position with the Symphony Orchestra, and persuaded the conservative Hempstengel Quartet to play one of his chamber compositions from manuscript. She aroused the interest of a publisher in his work, and introduced him to people who were helpful to him. By the new year Bukalka was fairly on his feet. He had proper clothes now, and Cressida's friends found him attractive. He was usually at her house on Sunday afternoons, so usually, indeed, that Papas began pointedly to absent himself. When other guests arrived, the Bohemian and his patroness were always found at the critical point of discussion, at the piano, by the fire, in the alcove at the end of the room, both of them interested and animated. He was invariably respectful and admiring, deferring to her in every tone and gesture, and she was perceptibly pleased and flattered, as if all this were new to her and she were tasting the sweetness of a first success. One wild day in March, 
Cressida burst tempestuously into my apartment and threw herself down, declaring that she had just come from the most trying rehearsal she had ever lived through. When I tried to question her about it, she replied absently, and continued to shiver and crouch by the fire. Suddenly she rose, walked to the window, and stood looking out over the square, glittering with ice and rain, and strewn with the wrecks of umbrellas. When she turned again, she approached me with determination. "'I shall have to ask you to go with me,' she said firmly. "'That crazy Bukalka has gone and got a pleurisy or something. It may be pneumonia. There is an epidemic of it just now. I've sent Dr. Brooks to him, but I can never tell anything from what a doctor says. I've got to see Bukalka and his nurse, and what sort of place he's in. I've been rehearsing all day, and I'm singing tomorrow night. I can't have so much on my mind. Can you come with me? It will save time in the end." I put on my furs, and we went down to Cressida's carriage, waiting below. She gave the driver a number on 7th Avenue, and then began feeling her throat with the alarmed expression which meant that she was not going to talk. We drove in silence to the address, and by this time it was growing dark. The French landlady was a cordial, comfortable person, who took Cressida in at a glance and seemed much impressed. Cressida's incognito was never successful. Her black gown was inconspicuous enough, but over it she wore a dark purple velvet carriage coat, lined with fur, and furred at the cuffs and collar. The Frenchwoman's eyes ran over it delightedly, and scrutinized the veil which only half concealed the well-known face behind it. She insisted upon conducting us up to the fourth floor herself, running ahead of us and turning up the gas-jets in the dark, musty-smelling halls. I suspect that she tarried outside the door after we sent the nurse for her walk. We found the sick man in a great walnut bed, a relic of the better days which this lodging-house must have seen. The grimy red plush carpet, the red velvet chairs with broken springs, the double gilt-framed mirror above the mantel, had all been respectable, substantial contributions to comfort in their time. The fireplace was now empty and grateless, and an ill-smelling gas-stove burned in its sooty recess under the cracked marble. The huge arched windows were hung with heavy red curtains, pinned together and lightly stirred by the wind which rattled the loose frames. I was examining these things while Cressida bent over Bukalka. Her carriage cloak she threw over the foot of his bed either from a protective impulse, or because there was no place else to put it. After she had greeted him and seated herself, the sick man reached down and drew the cloak up over him, looking at it with weak, childish pleasure, and stroking the velvet with his long fingers. Couleur de gloire, couleur de reine, I heard him murmur. He thrust the sleeve under his chin and closed his eyes. His loud, rapid breathing was the only sound in the room. If Cressida brushed back his hair or touched his hand, he looked up long enough to give her a smile of utter adoration, naive and uninquiring, as if he were smiling at a dream or a miracle. The nurse was gone for an hour, and we sat quietly, 
Cressida with her eyes fixed on Bouchalka, and I absorbed in the strange atmosphere of the house, which seemed to seep in under the door and through the walls. Occasionally we heard a call for de l'eau chaude and the heavy trot of a serving woman on the stairs. On the floor below somebody was struggling with Schubert's Marche Militaire on a coarse-toned upright piano. Sometimes, when a door was opened, one could hear a parrot screaming, Voilà, voilà, tonnerre! The house was built before 1870, as one could tell from windows and mouldings, and the walls were thick. The sounds were not disturbing, and Bukalka was probably used to them. When the nurse returned and we rose to go, Bukalka still lay with his cheek on her cloak, and Cressida left it. It seems to please him, she murmured, as we went down the stairs. I can go home without a wrap. It's not far. I had, of course, to give her my furs, as I was not singing Dona Anna tomorrow evening as she was. After this I was not surprised by any devout attitude in which I happened to find the Bohemian when I entered Cressida's music-room unannounced, or by any radiance on her face when she rose from the window-seat in the alcove and came down the room to greet me. Bukalka was, of course, very often at the opera now. On almost any night when Cressida sang, one could see his narrow black head, high above the temples and rather constrained behind the ears, peering from some part of the house. I used to wonder what he thought of Cressida as an artist, but probably he did not think seriously at all. A great voice, a handsome woman, a great prestige, all added together made a great artist, the common synonym for success. Her success and the material evidences of it quite blinded him. I could never draw from him anything adequate about Anna Straka, Cressida's Slavic rival, and this perhaps meant that he considered comparison disloyal. All the while that Cressida was singing reliably and satisfying the management, Straka was singing uncertainly and making history. Her voice was primarily defective, and her immediate vocal method was bad. Cressida was always living up to her contract delivering the whole order in good condition, while the Slav was sometimes almost voiceless, sometimes inspired. She put you off with a hope, a promise, time after time. But she was quite as likely to put you off with a revelation, with an interpretation that was inimitable, unrepeatable. Bukalka was not a reflective person. He had his own idea of what a great prima donna should be like, and he took it for granted that Madame Garnett corresponded to his conception. The curious thing was that he managed to impress his idea upon Cressida herself. She began to see herself as he saw her, to try to be like the notion of her that he carried somewhere in that pointed head of his. She was exalted quite beyond herself. Things that had been chilled under the grind came to life in her that winter with the breath of Bukalka's adoration. Then, if ever in her life, she heard the bird sing on the branch outside her window, and she wished she were younger, lovelier, freer. She wished there were no papas, no Horace, no Garnets. She longed to be only the bewitching creature Bukalka imagined her. One April day, when we were driving in the park, 
Cressida, superb in a green and primrose costume hurried over from Paris, turned to me smiling and said, "'Do you know, this is the first spring I haven't dreaded. It's the first one I've ever really had. Perhaps people never have more than one, whether it comes early or late.' She told me that she was overwhelmingly in love. Our visit to Bukalka when he was ill had, of course, been reported, and the men about the opera-house had made of it the only story they had the wit to invent. They could no more change the pattern of that story than the spider could change the design of its web. But being, as she said, in love, suggested to Cressida only one plan of action, to have the Tenth Street house done over, to put more money into her brother's business, send Horace to school, raise Papa's percentage, and then, with a clear conscience, be married in the Church of the Ascension. She went through this program with her usual thoroughness. She was married in June, and sailed immediately with her husband. Pappas was to join them in Vienna in August, when she would begin to work again. From her letters I gathered that all was well, even beyond her hopes. When they returned in October, both Cressida and Blasius seemed changed for the better. She was perceptibly freshened and renewed. She attacked her work at once with more vigor and more ease, did not drive herself so relentlessly. A little carelessness became her wonderfully. Bukalka was less gaunt and much less flighty and perverse. His frank pleasure in the comfort and order of his wife's establishment was ingratiating, even if it was a little amusing. Cressida had the sewing-room at the top of the house made over into a study for him. When I went up there to see him, I usually found him sitting before the fire, or walking about with his hands in his coat-pockets, admiring his new possessions. He explained the ingenious arrangement of his study to me a dozen times. With Cressida's friends and guests, Bukalka assumed nothing for himself. His deportment amounted to a quiet, unobtrusive appreciation of her and of his good fortune. He was proud to owe his wife so much. Cressida's Sunday afternoons were more popular than ever, since she herself had so much more heart for them. Bukalka's picturesque presence stimulated her graciousness and charm. One still found them conversing together as eagerly as in the days when they saw each other but seldom. Consequently, their guests were never bored. We felt as if the Tenth Street house had a pleasant climate quite its own. In the spring, when the Metropolitan Company went on tour, Cressida's husband accompanied her, and afterward they all sailed for Genoa. During the second winter people began to say that Bukalka was becoming too thoroughly domesticated, and that since he was growing heavier in body he was less attractive. I noticed his increasing reluctance to stir abroad. Nobody could say that he was wild now. He seemed to dread leaving the house, even for an evening. Why should he go out, he said, when he had everything he wanted at home? He published very little. One was given to understand that he was writing an opera. He lived in the Tenth Street house like a tropical plant under glass. Nowhere in New York could he get such cookery as Ruzenka's. Ruzenka, 
Little Rose, had, like her mistress, bloomed afresh, now that she had a man and a compatriot to cook for. Her invention was tireless, and she took things with a high hand in the kitchen, confident of a perfect appreciation. She was a plump, fair, blue-eyed girl, giggly and easily flattered, with teeth like cream. She was passionately domestic, and her mind was full of homely stories and proverbs and superstitions, which she somehow worked into her cookery. She and Bukalka had between them a whole literature of traditions about sauces and fish and pastry. The cellar was full of the wines he liked, and Ruzenka always knew what wines to serve with the dinner. Blasius Monastery had been famous for good living. That winter was a very cold one, and I think the even temperature of the house enslaved Bukalka. Imagine it, he once said to me when I dropped in during a blinding snowstorm and found him reading before the fire. To be warm all the time, every day, it is like Aladdin. In Paris I have had weeks together when I was not warm once, when I did not have a bath once, like the cats in the street. The nights were a misery. People have terrible dreams when they are so cold. Here I waken up in the night so warm I do not know what it means. Her door is open, and I turn on my light. I cannot believe in myself until I see that she is there. I began to think that Bukalka's wildness had been the desperation which the tamest animals exhibit when they are tortured or terrorized. Naturally luxurious, he had suffered more than most men under the pinch of penury. Those first beautiful compositions, full of the folk music of his own country, had been wrung out of him by homesickness and heartache. I wondered whether he could compose only under the spur of hunger and loneliness, and whether his talent might not subside with his despair. Some such apprehension must have troubled Cressida, though his gratitude would have been propitiatory to a more exacting taskmaster. She had always liked to make people happy, and he was the first one who had accepted her bounty without sourness. When he did not accompany her upon her spring tour, Cressida said it was because traveling interfered with composition, but I felt that she was deeply disappointed. Blasius, or Blesh, as his wife had with difficulty learned to call him, was not showy or extravagant. He hated hotels, even the best of them. Cressida had always fought for the hearthstone and the fireside, and the humor of destiny is sometimes to give us too much of what we desire. I believe she would have preferred even enthusiasm about other women to his utter oisivete. It was his old fire, not his docility, that had won her. During the third season after her marriage, Cressida had only twenty-five performances at the Metropolitan, and she was singing out of town a great deal. Her husband did not bestir himself to accompany her, but he attended very faithfully to her correspondence and to her business at home. He had no ambitious schemes to increase her fortune, and he carried out her directions exactly. Nevertheless, Cressida faced her concert tours somewhat grimly, and she seldom talked now about their plans for the future. 
The crisis in this growing estrangement came about by accident, one of those chance occurrences that affect our lives more than years of ordered effort, and it came in an inverted form of a situation old to comedy. Cressida had been on the road for several weeks, singing in Minneapolis, Cleveland, St. Paul, then up into Canada and back to Boston. From Boston she was to go directly to Chicago, coming down on the five o'clock train and taking the eleven over the lake shore for the west. By her schedule she would have time to change cars comfortably at the Grand Central Station. On the journey down from Boston she was seized with a great desire to see Blasius. She decided, against her custom, one might say against her principles, to risk a performance with the Chicago Orchestra without rehearsal, to stay the night in New York and go west by the afternoon train the next day. She telegraphed Chicago, but she did not telegraph Blasius, because she wished, the old fallacy of affection, to surprise him. She could take it for granted that, at eleven on a cold winter night, he would be in the Tenth Street house and nowhere else in New York. She sent Poppas, paler than usual with accusing scorn, and her trunks on to Chicago, and with only her travelling bag and a sense of being very audacious in her behaviour and still very much in love, she took a cab for Tenth Street. Since it was her intention to disturb Blasius as little as possible, and to delight him as much as possible, she let herself in with her latch-key and went directly to his room. She did not find him there. Indeed, she found him where he should not have been at all. There must have been a trying scene. Ruzenka was sent away in the morning, and the other two maids as well. By eight o'clock Cressida and Bukalka had the house to themselves. Nobody had any breakfast. Cressida took the afternoon train to keep her engagement with Theodore Thomas and to think over the situation. Blasius was left in the Tenth Street house with only the furnace-man's wife to look after him. His explanation of his conduct was that he had been drinking too much. His digression, he swore, was casual. It had never occurred before, and he could only appeal to his wife's magnanimity. But it was, on the whole, easier for Cressida to be firm than to be yielding, and she knew herself too well to attempt a readjustment. She had never made shabby compromises, and it was too late for her to begin. When she returned to New York, she went to a hotel, and she never saw Bukalka alone again. Since he admitted her charge, the legal formalities were conducted so quietly that the granting of her divorce was announced in the morning papers before her friends knew that there was the least likelihood of one. Cressida's concert tours had interrupted the hospitalities of the house. While the lawyers were arranging matters, Bukalka came to see me. He was remorseful and miserable enough and I think his perplexity was quite sincere. If there had been an intrigue with a woman of her own class, an infatuation, an affair, he said, he could understand. But anything so venial and accidental—he shook his head slowly back and forth. He assured me that he was not at all himself on that fateful evening, and that when he recovered himself 
he would have sent Ruzinka away, making proper provision for her, of course. It was an ugly thing, but ugly things sometimes happened in one's life, and one had to put them away and forget them. He could have overlooked any accident that might have occurred when his wife was on the road, with Papa's, for example. I cut him short, and he bent his head to my reproof. I know, he said, such things are different with her. But when have I said that I am noble as she is? Never. But I have appreciated, and I have adored. About me, say what you like. But if you say that in this there was any merprise to my wife, that is not true. I have lost all my place here. I came in from the streets, but I understand her, and all the fine things in her, better than any of you here. If that accident had not been, she would have lived happy with me for years. As for me, I have never believed in this happiness. I was not born under a good star. How did it come? By accident. It goes by accident. She tried to give good fortune to an unfortunate man, uh, Miss Rob. That was her mistake. It cannot be done in this world. The lucky should marry the lucky. Bukalka stopped and lit a cigarette. He sat sunk in my chair, as if he never meant to get up again. His large hands, now so much plumper than when I first knew him, hung limp. When he had consumed his cigarette, he turned to me again. I, too, have tried. Have I so much as written one note to a lady since she first put out her hand to help me? Some of the artists who sing my compositions have been quite willing to plague my wife a little, if I take the least sign. With the Espanola, for instance, I have had to be very stern, farouche. She is so very playful. I have never given my wife the slightest annoyance of this kind. Since I married her, I have not kissed the cheek of one lady. Then one night I am bored and drink too much champagne and I become a fool. What does it matter? Did my wife marry the fool of me? No, she married me, with my mind and my feelings, all here as I am to-day. But she is getting a divorce from the fool of me, which she would never see anyhow. The stupidity which excuse me is the thing she will not overlook. Even in her memory of me she will be harsh." His view of his conduct and its consequences was fatalistic. He was meant to have just so much misery every day of his life. For three years it had been withheld, had been piling up somewhere, underground, overhead. Now the accumulation burst over him. He had come to pay his respects to me, he said, to declare his undying gratitude to Madame Garnett, and to bid me farewell. He took up his hat and cane and kissed my hand. I have never seen him since. Cressida made a settlement upon him, but even Pappas, tortured by envy and curiosity, never discovered how much it was. It was very little, she told me. Pour des gâteaux, she added with a smile that was not unforgiving. She could not bear to think of his being in want when so little could make him comfortable. He went back to his own village in Bohemia. He wrote her that the old monk, his teacher, was still alive, and that, from the windows of his room in the town, 
he could see the pigeons flying forth from and back to the monastery bell-tower all day long. He sent her a song with his own words about those pigeons, quite a lovely thing. He was the bell-tower, and les colombes were his memories of her. End of Story 2 Part 3